Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. And here to help introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. Sari, tell us a little bit about Rebecca Sugar. So Rebecca Sugar is an animator, cartoonist, and songwriter, most known for creating the show Steven Universe, which aired on Cartoon Network starting in 2013 for five seasons. At the time, everyone was calling her the first woman to be a solo show creator in Cartoon Network's history, which we'll definitely talk about with them. And the show they created is incredibly powerful. You watched it, right, Jen? Yeah, it really is. For those who haven't seen Steven Universe, it's the universe with superhuman aliens that are gems, like gemstones, like amethyst and ruby and sapphire and the diamonds are the villains. And actually, the reason we reached out to Rebecca is because our two sound engineers for Just Something About Her, Aaliyah and Dee, couldn't say enough about how much the show and Rebecca meant to them. Um, And at the end, I'd really love to have them ask some super fan questions for Rebecca if that works. Yeah, I love it. When you watch the show, it is so apparent that it was created by somebody who is a very empathetic and thoughtful person. Totally. And hearing their story makes you realize the need for more diverse folks creating these shows. Amen. When I was doing some research, I came across a little bit about the history of diversity in animation. And let me tell you, it is not good. There's a (laughs) famous letter from Disney to a woman named Mrs. Frances Dreyer who wanted to animate for Disney in 1939. And I'll read Disney's response. It said, women do not do any of the creative work in connection with preparing the cartoons for the screen as that work is performed entirely by young men. For this reason, girls are not considered for the training school. So. It is because I said it was. That's basically his (laughs) answer. A hundred percent. But like a lot of other industries, women were then welcome in the ranks of animators during World War II so that Disney could keep their business alive while the men were away at war. Look at that. (laughs) How is it going now in terms of diversity in the industry? So now there's more women in most animation schools. About 70% of the animation students on the CalArts Valencia campus are female. Roughly the same at UCLA and 55% at USC. But women still hold fewer than a quarter of the union jobs there. Room to grow. (laughs) Definitely. Steven Universe has made such an impact on the LGBTQIA community. And I would love to ask Rebecca about the origins of the show, how working on it helped guide their own personal journey and how far Rebecca has seen the industry come. Rebecca Sugar, welcome to Just Something About Her. It's very cool of you to do this. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So there's been a lot of focus in the past couple of years on representation and diversity in Hollywood and media. But what strikes me that's so important about the work you've created, Steven Universe, is that it's media for kids. It's a cartoon. And our cartoon years are so formative when we're considering ourselves in the world, our belief systems, dealing with really tough questions about identity, deciding who we want to be, who we can be, who we're allowed to be. Mm. But you create a different universe, (laughs) one that's accepting and inclusive, understanding. And I think children are a great place to start in creating a real life society that looks more like that. So that is what I want to talk to you about. Oh, yeah. So for those of us who have not seen Steven Universe, can you tell us the premise of the show? 
Well, it's about a team of magical aliens called the Crystal Gems. They defend the Earth. The newest member is Steven Universe, who is the son of the team's late leader, Rose Quartz. It's a coming-of-age story about him really discovering who he is and where he fits into this team, what the legacy of his mother was. All of that is really coming into focus for him over the course of the series. It's based off of my younger brother, whose name is Stephen Sugar. And it's really about our relationship, our sibling relationship growing up. It's so sweet that it's about your younger brother. (laughs) It's not a lot of older sisters that do this whole homage to their younger brother. Hmm. Can you tell us the genesis of it when you conceptualized it? Was it something that you carried with you throughout childhood into adulthood? maybe sort of subconsciously working on this storyline? Well, I really pulled it together when I was asked if I would pitch something. I had been working on the show Adventure Time. And so the executives at Cartoon Network became familiar with my work and they asked if I would like to pitch. And I understood that if this thing actually happened, I would be potentially living with living and breathing this show for years and years and years. And I thought, well, you know, what is the kind of subject matter that I would want to be doing for such a long time and and pouring so much of myself Mm -hmm. into. And I had always drawn doodles of my brother and I'd had a lot of characters sort of loosely based on him and on us. So I thought, you know, it it would be have have to be about something or someone that I really, really loved so that I could be working on it for that long. So, so that kind of became the anchor for me, you know, in my family, you know, there's a very supportive environment, especially when it came to creativity Mm -hmm. and as sort of a queer and genderqueer teenager, it was really coming home and hanging out with my brother that I felt sort of safe to be myself in a way that wasn't necessarily true at school. Or I just wanted that kind of mm-hmm. having that feeling and also that support to be creative. Like I really wanted to share that energy with people through the show. So that was a goal from the beginning. And also growing up, we would watch these shows for kids are usually because of marketing purposes, very, very aggressively gendered. And I never really resonated with the shows that were designed for little girls. I always felt really alienated by them. And I really enjoyed shows that were for little boys, but I also understood at the time that I wasn't supposed to be watching them. I really wanted to create something that wouldn't make a kid like me feel alienated in that way. You know, when I was growing up, cartoons, well, I had Sesame Street, which was amazing. Oh, yeah. I'm 54. So I was right at the beginning of Sesame Street. I think that had a big impact on me seeing a diverse world, you know, mm-hmm. but then I also had like Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner and which I hated, which was usually ended up with like a frying pan ending up on somebody's head and killing them, especially them, you know, <laughs> but there's one clip that we wanted to play, which was about Steven Universe dealing with future mental health PTSD. Mm-hmm. I found it to be one of the most concise, helpful, illuminating discussions of post-traumatic stress that I've ever seen. You seem to have made a series of miraculous recoveries, but that doesn't change the fact that you experienced trauma. You've recovered physically, but have you recovered mentally? You think there's something wrong with my brain? Not wrong. It's that adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma can have a lasting impact on how your body responds to stress. This can affect your social, emotional, and physical development. When humans are in crisis, the brain releases the hormone cortisol. Your heart races, your muscles tense. I wonder if your body is reacting to a gem equivalent of cortisol. 
Rebecca, it's so well done. I couldn't believe, I mean, you could just like, just taking him through frame by frame, why you feel the way you do and how we are taught to diminish trauma that we do experience. But explain a little bit about the premise of the storyline from your perspective. Oh, sure. Steven's character throughout the show, we really understood as we were writing it, that his selflessness wasn't necessarily a positive thing. He really learned from the very beginning of the show to kind of put his health and safety second in order to be this hero that being the protagonist of a animated action comedy was demanding him to be. And I mean, I was looking at everything that we had done with the show and all of these experiences that we understood had been really deeply traumatic for Steven as a character. And it just seemed like we really have to, we really have to explain this. And it was also something that I was unpacking sort of towards the end of the show. I had started seeing a therapist Mm -hmm. in 2015 when I'd already been running the show for several years. And I, I was also really unpacking at that time the toll that events in my life had taken on, on me and that I had just really pushed to the side in order to run a television show. To be able to show how that was manifesting in Steven really felt also full circle to us to just really round out the story that we were telling and, and to sort of set him free from being the protagonist of an action comedy show and let him, you know, go be a human. Yeah, because I thought it was, I mean, it is like, so I thought that was important in many levels. First of all, at a sort of simplistic level, cartoon characters go through so much trauma and no one ever recognizes it, mm-hmm. right? So like, I thought that was really powerful. Uh, taking children seriously and telling them that their thoughts, feelings, and concerns matter. That's a big piece of business for them. And then knowing that you're going through your own journey at that time too. I mean, you're pretty young, have this big responsibility running this show. It seems, I mean, it seems incredibly demanding and you were struggling with your own mental health, started to see a therapist during that time. Tell us more about that journey. The show is sort of mirroring that experience. Right. Um, Gosh, it's, it's such a, it spans so much you had time. a lot going on. It's <laughs> like you um, had a lot going on. Yeah. Let's see. Where do I start? I like to start a project, and this was true even before Steven Universe. I love to create a project around something that I want to learn but don't already know, like something that I want to explore. Mm-hmm. Because when you're making something, it really evolves and it changes as you're making it. Um you know, kind of like writing a five paragraph essay and then returning to the thesis at the beginning and, you know, adjusting it, which we, which we didn't have an option to do mm-hmm. because we were really working straight ahead from first episode to the final one. But I wanted to explore really what it was about creativity, about my relationship with my brother, about the kind of shows that we were watching and the ways that they made me feel alienated. I didn't really know how to put my finger on that. But I knew that if Mm -hmm. I was going to make a television show, I wanted it to be about that because then the experience of making the television show would give me some of the answers about why animated television shows are the way that they are, you know, uh, why I hadn't been seeing these Mm -hmm. things. So over the course of it, I was learning so much and I was changing so much. And particularly if you were 24 when you were pitching this? Yeah, or 24, 25. I was running it when I was 25. So I must have been 24 when I was pitching. Yeah. And I also spent the early years of the show I was just in, I was really low. And and I think part of it was that all I wanted to do was make an animated show for boys, which were my favorite kinds of shows. And the attitude at the time, and this, you know, this was like 2011, Mm -hmm. I think. 
there was just a lot of skepticism that I would be capable of doing that. No one really believed that I would want to do that. They thought that I would actually want to make a show for young girls. They were concerned that the art looked, you know, quote unquote feminine. There was a lot of pressure also because they wanted me to be out there talking about being the first female show creator, solo show creator for Cartoon Network, uh-huh. which as a non-binary person, I just really didn't know what to do right. because there was so much pressure to be that person. And I just felt like I couldn't tell the truth. I couldn't talk about it. You know, so at the same time, this thing that was making everyone very skeptical was also the thing that they wanted me to go out in public and talk about and be proud of. And I just felt like whoever I really was existed in this completely other place. Wow. Just in the dark. In the dark because you couldn't see it, Rebecca, or in the dark because you weren't allowed to expose it? I didn't know how to articulate it. I'd never really had an opportunity to Uh explore it. I was hoping the show would be an opportunity to explore it. People, you know, hadn't asked me these questions. Like I I suddenly had people coming up to me and point blank asking me about my sexual identity. And as a bisexual person, I didn't really know I had a right to call myself that. I was in a a monogamous long-term relationship. I was writing stories about women that I had loved in the past, but I didn't think that just having feelings was something that, I mean, I had, I had just grown up surrounded by a lot of poison and a lot of ideas that, um, especially as a, as a bisexual kid, you know, if you're talking about it, it's because you're desperate for attention or you want Mm -hmm. boys to think it's sexy. So many eye roll and or creepy responses that I had completely stopped trying to discuss it in any way. Um, But it was so much a part of my work. And the thing that was liberating about pitching it is that I was telling the truth. The show was always about my relationship with my brother. And as I got to talk about these things in the cartoon and these characters that were sort of me, which were characters who were like are appear to be women, but aren't really women and who don't always know how to behave like they're supposed to in these social situations. And yet they can always sort of rely on the character of Steven to be there for them and to want to hang out with them. You know, I had this outlet, but then I was not accustomed to situations exactly like this, where I was being, you know, asked about myself personally. And expected to be a spokesperson, maybe. Oh, yes. No. And I hadn't really had any LGBTQIA community growing up. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of bisexual people have had this experience. And then as the show was happening, people were coming out of the woodwork to talk about how much they related to these characters. And then that community was starting to actually reach out to me and support me. And I really needed it, too, because... I just didn't know I had any, really any right to be a part of any of that. And I just was only really writing about my personal experience of of sort of walking around feeling like an alien in a human looking body. But then at the same time, you know, between the pushback from the studio and all of the press that I wasn't really sure how to do, it was just hard on me. And I got really physically sick. I lost like 20 pounds. Mm. The combination of sort of mental and physical stress was really an issue for me at that time. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. You know, my goal from the very beginning had been to tell this honest story about my relationship with my brother and to give that opportunity to my staff. My staff is largely LGBTQ intersectional individuals, you know, and people of color. And I wanted that opportunity for them as well. And around 2016, I really realized us having fun is what I want. This idea that there would be, uh, you know, a, a better way to be approaching the story that we're making was not unlike saying that there would be a better way for us to be as people, a way that would be easier to understand or a way 
that would be more convenient. And I had just been living under the weight of that for so many years. I really realized toward the latter half of the show that we're here, we're talking about our specific experiences and I'm interested in our joy. But, you know, from what I understand from the very beginning, the characters that you were creating that were very authentic to you in your experience resonated with people right away. And that sounds like a lot of pressure and trying, but do you feel like you did figure it out that you did learn from this experience? I mean, I think the, the real question that I went into it with is why did these hypergendered cartoons make me feel so alienated? Yeah. And I really got my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you got a lot of return on that question. <laughs> yeah, I found the people that felt that way too. I mean, these were things that I had never really had a language to articulate. I didn't know how to find people who felt this way growing up. Yeah. And, you know, really all the way through my late 20s, really. And, and this was also a big part of why I love to draw cartoons, why I had gotten into cartoons, because I really, I had sort of lost hope that I was going to make any sense in my own body. I like, I outsourced all of that into my drawing. I mean, I really grew up with an idea that, you know, gender was very rigid and, you know, yeah. I, I grew up feeling like I was sort of bad at being a woman instead of thinking that maybe that something completely else was going on that I, like I felt like right. I had like missed there were some other options right right I I thought it's like other yeah. people got a pamphlet I never got or something we'll talk a little more about how your life plays out in your work after we take a quick break from our conversation on just something about her with Rebecca Sugar can't fuse. You're a human. <laughs> I know. That's the problem. I'm just a human. That's not a problem. I love humans. You're all so funny. Look, these last few months have been great. Oh, yes. But I'm getting a little worried about the future. Oh, just ask Garnet. I'm starting to wonder if you respect me. <laughs> oh, you're hilarious, Mr. Universe. <laughs> Rose, please. Can you just talk to me for one second like a real person? I'm not a real person. I thought, haven't we... Is this not how it works? Oh... Oh, boy. This is so weird. You really are an alien. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Why are you crying? How are we going to make this work? Fusion? No, us. We're really, really different. What do we do now? Let's just talk. I barely know you. That's a good thing. For those who aren't one of the millions of super fans of Steven Universe, that was a clip from the cartoon series where Greg, who was a human, and Rose Quartz, who is the leader of the magical alien team known as the Gems, try to figure out how to communicate with one another and form a lasting bond. And now we're back with our guest today, Rebecca Sugar. Rebecca, we asked you to pick out a clip that you felt doesn't get enough attention. Tell us why this one was so important to you. This particular episode, it can be a little bit of a sleeper 
because it's not a, a big action episode, but there's just a lot of really critical information in there about Rose Quartz and, you know, her fear of mm-hmm. herself and who she is becomes a fear of other people not accepting her, but it's really, she can't accept herself. So the way that she is with Greg, she's sort of playing this part, trying to be this person that she thinks would be fun for him. Mm-hmm. And he wants to know her and he wants to be with her. And I was really writing this story at a time when I was closeted and I was not being honest with a lot of people. I mean, with really any, anyone in my life, but the idea of him really wanting to really know her to cut through this game and this character that she's playing and see all these aspects of her that she would otherwise be afraid to share. I mean, that was just a really powerful fantasy for me at the time that has since become a reality. But like that episode and their relationship isn't usually pointed out as one of the pieces of LGBTQIA expression in the Mm -hmm. show. People usually look at the same-sex characters' moments of kissing, you know, these, these moments of couples. But the relationship between Rose and Greg is a personal expression as a, as a bisexual person in a relationship with a man who, for many years, I wasn't honest with about that. Was it scary to write that, Rebecca? It sounds scary. Or was Rose's dialogue here just sort of an outlet for you? Or did it frighten you to even write that? I don't know. I, you know, I never, I didn't feel afraid to share this stuff in the form of a cartoon. I mean, that's always how, and, and in a way it mm-hmm. didn't feel like I was hiding anything because I could draw about these things. It, it was almost like I just hoped people already knew. It's hard to even remember how it felt at the time. Like as a person, my queer expression would really come out in the form of self-deprecating jokes and mm. offhand comments where it's like you're sort of testing the water and then mm-hmm. and then trying to gauge how people are going to react. Right. I mean, I was I was writing something that I also felt was true, which is that the people in my life that I was in love with and that loved me would want to be with me even if they knew. And, you know, th- there's elements of Greg and Rose that are sort of complicated and difficult, too. I mean, Greg tells Stephen that he essentially told Rose, I really it really doesn't matter to me who you used to be. You know, I want to be with who you are right now. And she was really honest with him about that, but she didn't unpack what had happened to her in the past. And the reason that Greg felt that way is because he also didn't want to unpack what had happened to him in the past. And I think that's something that I've found true about relationships I've been in and close friendships. You know, if you can invest that time and that work into yourself and kind of sorting through your own personal issues, you can be the support for someone else to do that. But until you do that, it's very hard to be that support for someone else. And it's very easy to enable them to avoid things if you are. Oh, totally. It's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> right. And, and that was something I really had to learn over the course of the show, too. Like early on, it really felt like my team would want to see me just working all the time and never taking time for myself and know that I was putting 200 percent into the show. And it wasn't until later in the show that I started to realize that that was sort of mm-hmm. a cruel thing to project onto my crewmates who wanted me oh, to be healthy. And they feel like they have to do the same thing, right? Because the boss is doing it. Yes. And that's difficult. But that's the pressure that I put on myself became a pressure I put on other people. I think I just really started to see how much the way that you feel about yourself and what you're worth and what you deserve 
becomes your attitude towards everyone around mm-hmm. you. I think too, when I realized sort of when I came out that my friends were still my friends and that they were happy for me and they were interested you right. know, to hear about these things. Uh, you know, when I thought about the people that I assumed that they would be is so cruel. I mean, I can't believe that I would assume that my friends would be so terrible to me that, that yeah. or, or even that they weren't my friends at all. If they were to really know me, that's it's like so unfair to them to have believed that. And that arc really got kind of trapped inside the show. Like Love Like You as a song, that the end credits theme. Mm-hmm. If I could begin to be half of what you think of me, I could do about anything. When I started writing that, that was really about, I thought it would be funny to have this thing that kind of sounds like a really personal kind of love song kind of bittersweet song, but if you actually look at what the lyrics are, it's about this alien that can't understand human feelings. We wrote the song over a period of three years, doing a piece at a time over the course of the show. So at the beginning, I thought, oh, it'd be sort of fun, this like secret gimmicky thing. And then in the middle, I was just so overwhelmed by work. The middle is just like, just being really down. And then by the end, I had sort of fully realized that as long as I was acting that way, that I couldn't be close to people. And, that, and it kind of got trapped in the show, but also specifically in that song. But, I mean, I think the thing that, like, for people who are listening to this to remember for themselves is you felt trapped in that, but you had enough trust at your gut that what you do, were doing was destructive, wrong. You could rely on your friends. They were going to react uh, the right way and be supportive when you shared whatever it was you wanted to share about yourself because you wrote it in the cartoon. You knew what Rose Quartz was doing when she was being demanding and belittling. You knew what was really happening. It reinforces to me that within ourselves, we have sort of validation and answers for ourselves, but you got to work them out. I think that's true. But the the cartoon is in and of itself a little bit of boundary. I mean, you know, no no one character is one thing. We're we're sort of the truth about us is spread across many different characters. All right, time to play some ads. But after this quick break, we're going to play one of the most talked about scenes from Steven Universe and talk about how it almost didn't happen. Stick around. We are gathered here today to celebrate Ruby and Sapphire, two of my favorite people who combine into one of my other favorite people. You all probably know her as Garnet. She is their love, given form. So that was audio from Ruby and Sapphire's wedding, two characters who are in love, so they fused together to create Garnet. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Rebecca Sugar, the creator of Steven Universe. Rebecca, that scene, I mean, I find it to be such an amazing depiction of marriage that two people come together to become a stronger and better version of themselves. But I know you got a lot of pushback on that episode. Do you remember what year that was? Was it before same-sex marriage was declared legal in the U.S.? We were pitching it the same year that it happened, and it wasn't going through. When you first meet Ruby and Sapphire, that was several years before. We were, we mm-hmm. were working on that in 2014, maybe even 2013. And, and the sketches mm-hmm. and the plans for it were from 2011. So after receiving initial pushback, we took a beat to figure out how to just enhance the story to the point that it could be sort of irrefutably entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Because nobody wanted to say you can't do this 
because these characters are queer, they couldn't say that. So the things that would be said would be, you know, we don't believe that our audience of six to 11 year old boys will be willing to watch a wedding. At which point we started compiling all the wedding from Powerpuff Girls, the wedding from Ben 10. Like there's, there's been Mm -hmm. many weddings that, you know, have been in shows for six to 11 year old boys. So that's not really something that makes sense. And then it just incubated for a really long time as I was also pushing for it to happen. And the thing that was frustrating at the time is that I wasn't in a lot of the meetings where this was being discussed. It was happening above my head. It was happening with, you know, people who weren't even necessarily in in the U.S. on calls about Mm -hmm. what would need to be pulled from if it aired in their country and more conservative country. And I would beg, like, put me in the room, please let me make a case for this. And it just I, I just, I couldn't get that to happen. Yeah, so. so frustrating. Your own work and you can't defend it. Yeah, but we just didn't stop. And we just kept, <laughs> we just kept writing it and having it be there and having it need to be there. And then finally we got approval on it, which I think came in 2016, if I'm remembering right. Wow. They gave us approval to do it and everyone was so excited. We were more than ready because it had been building for so long and And at that point, it had gone from being a single episode to being a proposal episode and a wedding planning episode and a wedding episode. That was really (laughs) exciting that we because because we had been working on it for so long. So it just kept expanding. And that was really great. And actually, because this is this is something I haven't really talked about that much. But between the time we had originally pitched it and between the time that we got to actually do it, I got engaged. So at that point, it was like, well, now we have to do because the characters were based off of me and my significant other. And now that we were actually getting married. It was like, we have to do the wedding or it won't be honest. And that's the one thing I promised that this show would always be. Right. So there was no way we weren't doing it at that point. And true to form, I mean, me and, and my husband both love cartoons. And he, at that point, was running his own show. Uh, okay, KO, let's be heroes. We were running shows mm-hmm. simultaneously. And it's very time consuming. So the cartoon characters got married before we did. But <laughs> eventually we, we got to. It was very fitting. and. You know, we both kind of lived through our drawings, so it worked out. Well, congratulations on hanging in there. Yeah, thanks. Um, I have just one more question for you. Is there anything you've seen that gives you hope your show has been held up as an example for other creators who want to make very different kind of content that pushes boundaries? But do you have a sense yourself of where storytelling's headed and what you've seen that you're really excited about? Oh, sure. I mean, having started working in TV animation in 2009, the landscape has just completely shifted. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out a way to say this that doesn't sound sad, but the idea that, you know, (laughs) interesting voices should be highlighted. I mean, that was not going on in the environment I was in then. Right. No, Um, it's just like, what's the common denominator that we can recreate over and over again? Because we think that that's likely to sell. Yes, yes. And it feels like that has changed. Right. I remember uh, Pete Browngart, who created the show Uncle Grandpa and is now working on the Looney Tunes shorts at Warner. I believe it was him who talked about pitching and he said, if you give them vanilla ice cream the next week, you can't give them chocolate chip. You know, you can't switch it to strawberry. (laughs) So what I think is really exciting about right now is that people are really interested in different points of view. They're really looking at animation, and I hope this will continue to be true, as a medium instead of a genre, which it's a medium. There's so many ways that you can use animation. The sort of competitive sprint of streaming services 
means that people are trying to create content that will grab your attention because it's different, not content that will sort of toe the line because it's similar. Right. And that is a wildly different environment than the one that I knew in 2009. And it's really exciting. And I think that in terms of LGBTQIA content, I also experienced pushback because it was so untested and unproven. And now there's, I'm worried that it sounds kind of cynical, but there's data that exists that people can point to, that Uh executives can point to and say, you can do this and people will enjoy it. There's an audience for it. It's like the, you know, straight white male universal perspective is breaking down. Yes. It's like the center of gravity for art. Yeah. I remember hearing this was a little bit ago, you know, Mm -hmm. there was a real concern. It's like, well, we have to make something, like you said, universal appeal, something for everyone. But those things were never for everyone. They were (laughs) never for everyone. No. And I knew that, you know, I had been a one, like as as a child, not really sure which thing was the thing that was supposed to be for me. So I feel like there's a greater understanding now than existed before that making something for everyone doesn't mean a singular show with a generic point of view. It means a billion shows with specific points of view. Yes, exactly. So well said. It's like it's with a billion points of view. Yes. The more specific, even if it is in your, you know, in the universe that you created, unfamiliar, the more specific it is to the creator's experience, the more universal appeal it actually does have because it's like based on the, you know, authentic feelings of the the person who wrote it. And, you know, we can find some of ourselves in that. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. I mean, it's just like fantastic work and it's, and also served to inspire and help a lot of people like well done, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank you so much. We have a couple of Rebecca Sugar, Stephen Universe superfans that are part of uh, Just in the Matter and the Recount, uh, Aaliyah Jackson and Dee Scott Carroll, who are, are two of our sound engineers. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. Hey. <laughs> uh, super nice to meet you. My question is kind of as a queer creator who is now kind of like on this pedestal for like queer animation in like like a slightly different realm because like like Steven Universe it's like a children's show but it's resonated with lots of other people in the queer community of like all ages and things like that like I know like people like Noelle Stevenson are kind of like marching in your like next steps almost um and like how do you how does that feel (laughs) (laughs) so much of the show was planned to be and and is such a specific personal expression of me and my team that I feel like in the case of other LGBTQIA content creators, like if a story that they would make about their personal experience, to me, there's, there's no line or anything. There's no stake. That's going to be the first story like that, that ever exists, especially for LGBTQIA content creators. There are so few of us and there's been so little, especially in the animation space and the children's space to have people like us in leadership positions. I mean, there's so much unbroken ground we need stakes all over the place. So I, I don't, I don't see a straight line in that way. I, I really see a billion opportunities for any cartoonist to say something about 
their specific window into the world and, and their point of view and their situation. I mean, I, I love really any really honest personal piece of artwork and I just want to see that from everybody. So my question then to follow up with that is as a musician as well, Steven Universe has musical numbers. So my question is like, when do you decide that like this moment in the story that you're telling and in the episode like needs a song? Like what's that process like? Oh my gosh. Well, it has to be a moment where the the emotions are too powerful to be expressed any other way. It has to be sort of warranted. We we're an outline based show. We're written by the storyboardists. We'll start with like a loose outline of how an episode will go down. And we'll usually almost always decide at that stage, whether there's going to be a song or not. And the song won't exist yet, but we'll sort of say the characters reach this emotional height and then a song happens and they feel like this at the beginning of the song. And then they feel like this at the end of the song. And then that's what I'll take home where it's like, okay, how do I get from this to this in the form of a song? What is the hook? that means something at the beginning of the song. And then by the time they have this epiphany, means something totally else at the end of the song. So that's the thought process for me. It's been amazing to get a chance to write music for TV, especially because I went to school for animation. I studied animation. I didn't study music or music theory in the same way. So making songs every time was a little bit like reinventing the wheel. All I wanted to do was not do the same thing I had done the time before. Like I had to figure out how to do something different. And what's been really wonderful since the show ended is that I've taken this chance to start learning music theory. So am I really excited for what I'm going to get to work on next because I'll have a lot more information about how it works than I did before. And I like knowing, I mean, I love naive art and I am proud to admit that that's what my music has been for the, for the last decade, but I'm excited to know a little bit more. And yeah, so that's how we would plan it. Rebecca Sugar, thanks for being on. It was really appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Really great. Thank you. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. Uh, what did you think? Meeting Rebecca. I'm just so impressed by what she's accomplished because to be a showrunner and create a show like that and do it for so many years at such a young age is mind-blowing. But I mean, I hope that the lesson others take away from Rebecca's experience is Rebecca went into this project understanding they could learn from it, but not knowing where they wanted to take it or be certain about that journey. Right. And even though Rebecca was dealing with thoughts about insecurity and having so much pressure put on them from the studio and other people that had expectations, asking Rebecca about being the first woman to do this when Rebecca doesn't even identify as a woman. But still, you could see it in the characters that they did have a very deep belief in themselves and confidence that they could produce a show that would be meaningful to children. And I think for all of us, that should mean that to trust our gut. And also, I'm just fascinated by the creative process, but to trust that in the creative process, you don't have to know where you're going. Learning can be not a selfish journey for the artist or the creator, but a journey that you take everyone on. Right. And I think that's a great lesson. 
Yeah, it just shows you that really authentic experiences, even if they are unique and individual to one person, resonate because we're all just trying to feel seen and heard. And one thing I thought was so important too is that Rebecca used that example of Rose Quartz, who was an imperfect character, that they were trying to explore some of their imperfections and the way that they communicated with their loved ones. And I also just thought it was so amazing to hear how they used art as therapy in a way. It was amazing to hear that there are so many outlets available to us if we want to explore ourselves. And I'm really glad that Dee and Aaliyah suggested. Same. And I'm really glad that they, (laughs) me too, and that they got to ask their questions. I could hear it in their voice how excited they were. (laughs) I could see if you watch the show, you can understand why it has such a big impact on, on people. And it's pretty inspiring too. Totally. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Talk to you later. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Rebecca Sugar for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.